Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where authors take you on a journey into their creative process. I'm David Badil. I'm delighted to be joined by an author and journalist who was a very successful literary editor before she decided to chart the lives of Mary Wollstonecroft, Charles Dickens, and Jane Austen, amongst others, to become, as she's been described, one of the greatest biographers of our age. It's Claire Tomlin. Hello, Claire. Hello. As is traditional here on the Penguin Podcast, you brought along a number of objects as well that have inspired <laughs> and influenced the writing of your latest book, which is a biography again, but this time it's your biography, it's autobiography. It's an obvious first question, but what inspired you after writing so many other people's lives to write your own? I suppose I was used to thinking about the shapes of people's lives and I was getting old myself. And I found I had an awful lot of material knocking around in my study my father lived to be 98, and when he died, my stepmother sent me all my letters that I'd written from the age of 11, which he'd kept. I'd written to my daughter when she was in Mozambique, and I was working on the Sunday Times. Every week I wrote, I think, that I had my diaries, not literary diaries, but even engagement diaries are very helpful in reminding you of your life. So that's a very biographer's response, isn't it? Because that means you had all this archive material yes. suddenly presented to you about your own life, and that would lead you instantly to find patterns and, you know, to narrativize that. Absolutely, yes. And it was, of course, a mess. And I soon realised that the only way to handle it was to make blocks of experience and divide them up into chapters and miss out, of course, an enormous amount. What about the leap, though, to think, is my own life worthy of record, considering that the people that I record are, you know, Jane Austen and Pepys and Dickens. Was there a point where you worried about, is my own life worth recording like no, this? Dr Johnson said, any life is worth recording. Every life has things of interest. And I thought uh, very much, born in 1933, a girl, I've lived through an extraordinary period, the war, which I remember the beginning of the war, I remember Munich even, the welfare state coming on, the first woman prime minister, the moral changes, the medical changes, the way everyone changed in the 1960s. Before we get on to sort of you, can we just talk about your parents, who obviously begin the book? And they were very interesting characters, your parents, and they sort of hint a little bit at the path that you were going to take because they were artistic. Your father went on to write a thesis about D.H. Lawrence and your mother was a composer at a time when that wasn't easy for women to do. Actually, you did have some opportunity to do that. There's an extraordinary moment when you record the meeting Joyce. Yes, meeting James Joyce on her honeymoon, already pregnant with my sister. And my father was friendly with someone who knew Joyce and so there was an introduction and they went to his flat in Paris. And uh, she played, or she played the ones she'd set to music. And he really liked them. He asked her to play them again. Mm. And, and he basically gave official permission yes, yes. to use his poetry. Yes. He gave his blessing, yeah. Their marriage was complicated and quite difficult. And you, it was a disaster. You, it was a disaster. <laughs> you go into that quite quickly. Well, I'm fascinated by them as characters. Yeah. They're so extraordinary, these two kids, who, for both of whom coming to London was the great achievement and mm. London was the ideal place where everything was going to happen. Well, you, you use your, as you said early on, your father's memoirs as source material. And there's a bit in the book, there's an audio clip we're going to listen to where you first discover some alarming truths about how the marriage between Muriel and Emile begins to break down. Let's hear that now. They quarrelled fiercely. Her friends loved her, and many of them were interesting to Emile, but there were days when he found himself disliking her. Feeling his dislike was terrible to Muriel, worse than a lover's quarrel because it led to a cold and disdainful withdrawal. She became jealous. Their love-making gave her little pleasure, and I suppose not much more than temporary relief to him, 
so they grew angry and ashamed, each ready to blame the other for their failure. While he agonized about how he could escape from what he had desired for so long, she also formed a wish to have another child. If she mentioned it to him, he did not respond. Long after I was grown up and my mother was dead, my father wrote a memoir in which he described how in September 1932, on a holiday in Cornwall with her and walking in silence on a high cliff path, he felt such hatred for her that he thought seriously of killing her. He reasoned that if he pushed her over the cliff edge, no one would ever know it was not an accident. It was the only time in his life he had a murderous intention, he wrote, but he never forgot it. He did not act on it. Instead, that night, still without exchanging a word, she set out to end their estrangement, and I was conceived. That was A Life of My Own, written by my guest Claire Tomlin and read by Penelope Wilton. You say that your relationship with your father was good enough to bear the revelation, but not deep enough for you to question him about it, about that particular revelation that he had a sudden murderous urge to push your mother off the cliff. But your relationship with your father changed quite a lot when you were young. He didn't want me to be born. He didn't like me. <laughs> Once he, family doctor had told him that I was very clever, he changed. <laughs> really? He valued so, cleverness. Cleverness was what had made his success. I mean, I'm going to talk about this a bit later on as well, but you seem to be quite a forgiving person in, yes, many, in many ways. I am. And you've had quite a lot of maltreatment, I think, over the years, with often with men. And, <laughs> and you, you're fairly forgiving about it. And, you're, and that perhaps starts there, doesn't it? Starts there with your dad being horrible, like essentially saying, I, well, I, did, I don't like you. He did change in his attitude. And then I loved my mother dearly, as is obvious in my book, but I also loved my stepmother in due course. Mm. I was, didn't want him to, to marry someone else and put someone else in her bed. But she was lovely. I, was very, I loved her very much. But what about your dad? Did you love him? I'm not sure that I loved him. We were very close, though. Mm. Your mother used to say that if all else fails, you can take refuge in books. Yes. And so you became a voracious reader, which brings us to the first object you've brought along to share with us, which is a book. It is, and it says, Claire de Lavernay, November 1945. Yeah. I bought it for 15 shillings for myself, just after the end of the war. And it's J. Neal's A Magnificent Classic life of Queen Elizabeth. Mm. And I've been rereading it, and it's as brilliant. I mean, I read it many, many, many times as a child. I, it was my favourite book, I suppose. It's it's exactly how to write a historical biography. It's um, The context is brilliant. It, it gives every aspect of the politics. But it's also very good on the, the, the personalities and all the difficulties of her upbringing. And... How old were you when you read that? Well, I bought it when I was 12. When you were 12, yes. and it's a biography of Queen Elizabeth. Yes. It's interesting for me, uh, I've come to biography and non-fiction quite late in life. I've, I, For years, I would only read fiction. It felt very grown up to me, biography and non-fiction. And I think I found that I needed the sort of single rope that you get in a, in a in fiction of a story that takes you from one place to the other. I found the sort of collection of what well, has seemed to me like too many random people coming to, you know, suddenly there's this person and that person in the recording of life quite difficult to follow. It's changed now. I find it, I now find it e easier. But I think for me, it feels to be quite grown up. That's my point about a 12-year-old reading a biography of, of Elizabeth I. I think I was a bit precocious, yes. I was passionately interested in history and thought I wanted to be a historian. Right. But uh, let me say that I am a great reader of fiction. And I was thinking the other day 
that if I were dumped down in any 19th century novel, I would feel completely at home. Tolstoy right. or George Eliot or Dickens yes. or Thackeray or Fontana, the wonderful German novelist, or Flaubert. Well, those 19th century novels, because they're the panoply, the, the sort of breadth of their canvas is so big, that they have a certain sense that they are history, yes. that they're taking in the whole. Yes. Dickens is taking the whole of London or the whole of Britain almost in the 19th century. Yes. I think there's a more miniature element of fiction now, yes, not, perhaps. Not too good on real women, Dickens. No, not at all good on real women. Terrible on real women. But, you know, George Eliot, yes. good on, good on yes. real women. Tolstoy and Fontana. Yeah. Let's just go back a little bit. You'd been to Cambridge. At Cambridge, for example, you met this extraordinary family, the Barnes, who you became close to, and yes. uh, there George set up the third programme, yes. which became Radio 3, and yes. you went to visit at their country house, and John Betjeman yeah. would come to their country house, yeah. and it, it, George's half-sister Mary was friends with Huxley and T.S. Eliot right. and all, all that kind of thing. And I, I bring this up because you always seem to have managed to sort of find yourself amongst very creative people. It seems to me that you have always mixed, even from a young age, with very creative people. In a way, that idea of your parents meeting Joyce is yes. followed through. Yes, because... and my mother with Dorothy Hess too. Yes. Um, Why do you think that is? I mean, I mean, obviously, well, later... my mother was my mother was very artistic, and she did know artists and musicians and people. And although her life rather faded away, she was very charming. My mother and people really were very fond of her and liked her. Yeah, it interests me particularly because when I started to write, when I when I started to do comedy, I didn't know where the world of sort of people who wrote and people who made comedy or film or books. I didn't know where it was. And when I read about your life, I have a slight tinge of envy because it seems to me like, oh, that you were just there and you you sort of did know where it was, even though you don't come from privilege and you don't Not come from... No, you don't. But no. somehow or other, you always manage to find the people who would be doing this kind of work. I, this is a new question to me. It's very interesting to me. I think my mother really believed that artistic musical skills and artistic were what mattered. Mm. And she never felt inferior to other people, therefore. And although we were very poor, <laughs> I felt all right, you mm. know. I thought Comfortable we were... Comfortable in that yes, world. Yes, yes. But also, clearly, you had a certain confidence. Yes, I think I did. You know, which was perhaps unusual for a woman at the time when yes. knocking about with eminent literary figures. I suppose I did, yes. Uh, you met Nick... At Cambridge. Yes. Uh, and after setting up home in Greenwich, you eventually moved with three daughters to Gloucester Crescent in North London. Gloucester Crescent particularly seems to me to be a hub of sort of amazing <laughs> figures from the 60s and 70s that just all end up there. I mean, Kenneth Clark, Kurt Vonnegut, whoever, George Melly. There's a bit brilliant bit. We actually, let's hear it, where George Melly comes over to have a party, essentially, at your house. Let's hear that now. George was an adorable man of many gifts. As a musician as a connoisseur, as a writer, and he and Diana were good neighbours and enlivened the street with their joie de vivre. In the middle of their ground-floor front window, facing outwards to cheer the passers-by, he hung his Magritte painting, one of the series showing a much larger-than-life penis with a face and hair. Occasionally you saw a startled response from a pedestrian, but the neighbours took it in their stride. One evening quite late, as I was going to bed and Nick was out, George rang the bell and asked if he could bring a party of friends into our downstairs room, where we had our upright piano. Yes, I said, of course, and at once a crowd materialised in high spirits and carrying bottles. 
They filled the room quickly. There was music and dancing, and George put on his famous act of impersonation, man, woman, bulldog, which involved going out into the back garden, removing all his clothes, and reappearing three times in different poses. The final one, backwards on all fours, with a good view of his testicles. There was an innocence to George's outrageousness. He gave him great pleasure and entertained his friends. Soon after this, Nick arrived home, expecting to tiptoe in without waking me, to find the house shaking with music, laughter and thumping feet. Brilliant. <laughs> if you don't know what George Romani looked like, do go and Google him because it really helps that image. Uh, another oh. extract there from your new book, A Life of My Own, written by Claire Tomlin, my guest on the Penguin podcast. Do you miss all that? That sort of very, very lively... Well, you can't miss the past. You can look back right. on it happily. It, it's an extraordinary street, it was. Uh, it had a lot of empty houses. They'd been uh, lodging houses. Victor Pritchard said there were two brothels on, on, the, on the road to the back, Regent's Park Terrace. So it had been a very poor, rundown area, built in the 19th century. But I realised very quickly we were living on a border. If you went out one way from Gloucester Crescent, you were in Regent's Park, Primrose mm. Hill, elegant houses, mm. everything rather splendid. If you went the other way towards Camden, well, there was Rowson House, the last of the houses built for homeless men in 1905, which was still in good working order. And most of the men hung around in, in the streets and there was mm. a street market and there was the underground station and Camden Town. And in my first weeks there, I saw two men fighting with knives outside the underground station. <laughs> mm. <laughs> wow, mm. you know, mm. where have we come to live? But it was very quickly being colonised by people like us. Well, at one time, we all thought of pulling down the walls and having a, a huge garden, but some people, of course, didn't want to. But that's very interesting, you see. that's And I, sli I love that idea, um, that there is a slight sense that it was a not a commune exactly, but a sort of version of a commune of like all the, or at least had a communality about it. All these very, very interesting and bohemian and artistic and literary people all hanging out together in this quite small part of London, as you say, on the borders between very posh London and very hard London. Yes, yes. Well, not all that bohemian. I mean, I do think there was a time I didn't think, like, early on when it's two o'clock in the morning you could always hear cars revving as, as people either left or arrived yeah. <laughs> at their houses. Yeah. It was very good. It was. You brought along an object from your Gloucester Crescent time, which is a... Well, you tell us what it is. Well, yes. Now, this is, in fact, a very beautiful and I think unusual Wedgwood teapot which allows you to make a lot of tea and you can move the pot into different positions. And I bought this off Reg's stall at just at the edge of Gloucester Crescent. Reg came twice a week with a stall. He bought things from dead people's houses. Mm. I mean, poor North London dead people's houses. Yeah. And I probably paid two shillings for that. It's pot. beautiful. It's very beautiful. And it means you a actually, great... Have you actually used it to make tea? No, I've used it. Yes, I can see. I've used it. Every... I mean, we always used the things we bought. Yeah. And it somehow represented the, the, this sort of poor side. We were not living in a grand part of London. We were living in a really poor part of London. Mm. And there were no very good shops but we had this 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 marvelous group life even though you were having this amazing time really and you were mixing with all these amazing people there were loads of difficulties in your life you know you you lost a child you had three daughters you were working part time and nick nick was unfaithful you're very clear about that in the book and also quite abusive to you that's that that's why I want to come back to the forgiving thing because from a modern sensibility 
when Nick hits you... I was surprised, I must say. Well, that, even there you see, Claire, that's you being forgiving, to so say you were surprised. Yeah, because it I, seems to be... I believe in forgiveness. I yeah, believe not... in seeing why things happen and how they happen. Even to the point of what is essentially domestic abuse, though? Well, or do you not right. feel it, that it was that? Well, it was wrong. It was absolutely wrong. But I did, in due course, find a wonderful woman who helped me through the Tavistock Clinic... So I was deeply, deeply grateful. She helped me, really profoundly helped me. But let's just hear a bit uh, from the period that we're talking about. My behaviour changed too. I could say that Nick's carryings on over the past few years had had their effect, but it may be that I simply moved with the times. What happened was that I was wooed by a clever and likeable journalist, and when I saw my 30th birthday approaching, I decided almost on the spur of the moment, that as une femme de trente ans, I might lunch with an admirer and embark on an affair. I was not in love and had no intention of going any further than a few afternoon assignations. He was charming and we both enjoyed having a secret. I refused his pressing invitations to go away for a weekend. No one would know, no harm would be done to the children, but if you are a gossip columnist, people bring you stories. Someone must have heard something and carried word to Nick. I was standing alone in the kitchen one evening when he came in and advanced angrily with clenched fists, raised to punch me in the face. I ducked. His blow broke the wooden bar that held the roller towel on the larder door where I was standing. I've kept it ever since as a reminder. Later on... You talk about, you say you weren't the right wife for him, too serious, too critical. You didn't adore him enough like his other admirers. I'm not going to use the word forgiving again because I've said too long, but what I wonder is if that's quite biographical in, in a sense that as a writer, looking back at your own life, you're able to have a detachment about how the situation was in your marriage that feels like not angry, it's just analytical, it's understanding. I think writing the book led me to think that. One of the things, of course, writing the book, I was writing about my children's father. Mm, of course. And Nick was a wonderful man in so many ways and a complicated man. And he'd had a difficult upbringing, a very difficult upbringing. And he was brilliant and he was loved by his friends and he was charming. And I, I wouldn't have dreamt of painting a, a picture of a villain. We all have failings. Mm. And this thing about saying I didn't adore him, I think this is perhaps part of the point. But I was disappointed in the marriage. We we were very good friends. We had fun together. But I did not adore him. This is sort of a, an obvious question in many ways. But if he hadn't have died, I think I get a sense that you don't think you would have stayed together. I think I think we'd sort of come pretty close to the end, really. This is when you began to write your own work, which brings us to your next object, which is a book you were given in 1971. Yes, this is a little book called Eccentric Female Biography, and it's a very rare book, in fact. It was um, 1803. And in it, one of the eccentric females whose biography is in it has a picture of Mrs. Godwin, Mary Wollstonecraft, mm. and it's a picture that no one had seen yeah. and I had never seen. And she's in most of her pictures, she looks, well, in her young pictures, she looks very severe and intellectual, but in this, she looks like a fierce, radical young woman yeah. with a tilted top hat it's on brilliant. her head. The top hat is yes. amazing. Isn't it? It's Was absolute... that fashionable at the time? Well, I don't know, but it's clearly absolutely genuine yeah. picture. 
So I was thrilled by this. Now, when I'd finished the book and my publishers were going to publish it, they sent me a, a jacket, which was plain beige jacket that would put anybody off. And I said, I'm not having my book published with this jacket. Mm. My friend David Gentleman, who lived in Gloucester Crescent, I said, would he look at this picture and would he design a jacket? He used the picture and it's a very, very striking jacket. Yeah, no, it is his brilliant jacket. And her face... It attacks the reader. You do. You yes. think like I, it's, yes. this is a radical and interesting yes. person. How much of a feminist statement was it that, that this this was your first biography, Mary Wollstonecraft? Yeah, it was a feminist statement, absolutely. Yes, and of course, it was the moment when you know things were things were revving up for feminists. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And meanwhile, in in your life, this was a great success. This book. Yes, it was a success. It was a bestseller and attracted interest abroad as well, didn't it? You went and talked about it in New York and... Yes, and the way if someone bought the film rights and things yeah. like that, a film never got made. But, you know, those sort of things happened. Things yeah. sort of changed in my life. Yeah, but meanwhile, yes. it was a difficult time for you at the same time. This was when Tom was born yes. with spina bifida. Yes. Uh, and, you know, later on, obviously, we've talked already about Nick dying. Yes. There's something I'm interested in as well, which is, is there a connection, do you think, between your own what I might call stoicism, perhaps, in the face of your own difficulties and the fact that a lot of these people that you're writing about, they continue being themselves and writing and working, all of them. I mean, people did in those days, obviously, but all of them suffered. I mean, Wollstonecraft, obviously. but Yes, and not only suffered, I've realised this looking back, that I always written about people who had a struggle. I have yes, never written about anybody who started in a privileged position. I mean, the most privileged was probably Catherine Mansfield, but even so, wow, she had a struggle. Yeah. I've realised that I think I couldn't do anything else but write about people who had struggles because that sort of is what makes them interesting. But they struggle and endure. Yes. Don't yes, they? Yes. You know, we're not talking about anyone who struggles and then goes down. No. You know. No, and and they achieve. They achieve, too. exactly. Yes, yes you know. absolutely. And you were achieving at the same time. You got a job as literary editor at the New Statesman and then at the Sunday Times. And obviously those are environments which at the time were notoriously male-dominated. Perhaps I'm talking, thinking more about the Sunday Times. The Sunday Times, yes, which yes. It does feel the way you paint it, it feels like you can smell, as it were, the maleness of those rooms. Yes, yes. And and people saying, well, of course, you're, you're not a proper journalist. Yeah. Literary journalist isn't a proper journalist. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yeah. there's a bit which I think bears this out, in the, and we're going to hear it now from the audiobook about what the kind of environment was like at the Sunday Times and indeed how you did something in reaction to that, which I think was great. When Julian Barnes left, John Ryle came from the Times Literary Supplement to be my deputy. He was an anthropologist who'd worked among the Dinka in Sudan and also run a brave small literary magazine, Quarto, and he brought new ideas and contacts. He'd also been commissioned to ghost Mick Jagger's memoirs, but that project had foundered, partly because Jagger was unable to remember much about his own life. There was a lot of laughter in the office with John. One day I told him I was fed up with the pictures of half-dressed young women pinned up around the building and asked him if he would bring me a few gay magazines with photographs of young men seductively posed. He brought them and I pinned up the best of the pictures around the literary department. Soon there was a steady stream of journalists and printers arriving in our office to take a look. Some found it hard to believe I could have done something so shocking, since I also ran a no-smoking department. I probably annoyed several of my tough associates. By then we had acquired a secretary of great charm and sweetness, Zori Amini. 
she was not shocked. One thing I do like about that as well is, is I would say your feminism, if this isn't uh, sort of categorising it sort of too narrowly, but it's a feminism, but it's quite friendly towards men in the sense that one of the things that's clear in the book is that, that when you want to, and you, you will admire the male form in this case, or indeed the way you write about some of the men in your past, the way you write indeed about Carl Miller and Nick early on. It's clear they're attractive men and about your affair with Martin Amis. I mean, I would say you sort of turn it upside down in that it feels to me that's the way that conventionally an older man might write about his memory of being with a younger woman, and you completely turn that upside down. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Actually, I saw Martin Amis fairly recently. I went to New York to do a piece about maleness and literary great male figures. Oh, right. I interviewed Martin Amis. No, yeah. I saw him very recently at uh, Ian McEwan's birthday party. Right. Yes, which was lovely. Yeah, it's no. Nice and it, well, you say it's nice to see you. So you seem to get on still with everyone you've come into contact yeah. with. and Everyone I've had an affair with. Everyone you've had an affair with. Yes, about I the only person who I get the sense in the book you're not still perfectly good friends with, that's perhaps Andrew Neal and Oberon Waugh. <laughs> Those are the two people. Well I, well, I did make up with Bron, yes. I mean, so you did make up we with We did him. make up, yes. Well, I should say, for anyone who, who hasn't read the book, it's a strange moment in the book where you talk about how Private Eye, essentially in their annoying way, <laughs> suggested that you were corrupt and that you were giving, essentially, literary favours whilst you were an editor to your friend's favourable reviews. Yes. Is that right? Have yeah, I that's catch- right, yes, yeah. yes. And, but they, and- were, they were gulled into it by someone at the Sunday Times... I mean, it was very complicated. Male, right. a male, an in male, in joke among men. But that's the thing, isn't yes. it? I mean, it's yes. hard not to read that as men in their literary clubs, yeah, was, annoyed and angry yes. that it, a woman was in a powerful position yes, over there. Yes, it, that's right. It was. It was. It was awful, actually. You, you drew towards a bit with Andrew Neil as well, although, although I think you say at the end of it that you admire what he went on to do. I have friends who who work with him and they get on with him. I've never I've haven't had a conversation with him since then. Yeah, because he that... was not a good editor. Right. And his role was not pretty. Yeah, because that's when you left. Yes, your, that's when I left. The, whopping, as, yeah. Because of the whopping situation. Yes, yes. Although that was painful, it meant that you could write biographies full time. It, it, it changed so everything was everything was different. Which brings us on to your next object, which is a marble foot. Yes, well actually it's a plaster foot. I wrote a book about the actress, Mrs. Jordan. She was a really great actress in the 1790s and the, the early 19th century. Mm. And she was also the mistress of one of the sons of King George III. And she bore to King George III ten beautiful grandchildren. Ten children. Five sons and five daughters. Mm. But at a certain point, the royal family realised that there was a terrible dearth of legitimate heirs. Right. And so the sons were all told they must ditch their mistresses and find German princesses and produce some legitimate children. Right. And so Mrs. Jordan was booted out. And it's a terrible, terrible story. And she went back to the stage, and then they tried to stop her on the stage. And it was a marvellous evening in uh, Covent Garden when she came on, and she'd been attacked in the Times. And when she came on and started to speak, the whole audience rose up and cheered her. Surely that should be a film. Well, well, people have have. It's got the Hollywood tried. moment built in. It is absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. And she was huge. I mean, she wasn't just a light actress. She played Shakespeare too. Right. And she was admired by you know Byron, by Coleridge. So why do you have her foot? When she died, William, who when he became king, he commissioned a life-size statue of her. Yes. And he actually wrote, and I found this, that it was to go 
in Westminster Abbey among the statues of the Queen. Oh, it was. But this had been a mistress. Then, this had been crossed out. All oh, right. But a few generations later, one of the descendants had the statue, and when he came to write his will, he bequeathed it to the Queen, and the Queen accepted it. Mm. So it's actually in Buckingham Palace, where, of course, Mrs. Jordan <laughs> never, never set foot. Really? It never would have done. The book was a, was a very big success, and I suggested an exhibition at Kenwood. And I knew we must have the life-size statue as mm. the centre of the exhibition. Mm. So I wrote to the Keeper of Queen's pictures, and they said, no, you can't have it, because it is so heavy. But if you can pay for someone to make a cast of it, right. he doesn't muck up the carpets, yeah. you can do it. And so that's what we did. And the man who did the, the plaster copy said to me, would you like a bit of Mrs. Jordan? And I think he thought I was going to say the head, but I mm. didn't. I said, yes, I would, but I'd like the foot. Why would you like the foot? Well, she had particularly beautiful feet. And anyhow, I thought, I don't want her head. Mm. I thought somehow this would be a nice thing to have in the house. It's a, for anyone who obviously can't see, it's yeah, a barefoot, which bear. is one of the things that makes it rather vulnerable and charming, I yeah, think, that it is well, a barefoot. Yes, it is a barefoot. And also, of course, you said she's in Buckingham Palace but has never set foot in Buckingham Palace. Yes. So I think the foot is particularly appropriate yes, yes. from that point of view. It's another example, isn't it, of someone, you writing about someone who had to struggle. Indeed, you know, very much had, so. He had to struggle. I'm going to talk about what I found most painful in the book in the light of that, which is the suicide of your daughter, because I think that's, I assume for you, your most extreme moment of trauma and, and struggle. And it's incredibly moving, I think, in the book. So I'd like to play from the bit of writing where, is that going to be okay? Because it's, yes. uh, it's uh, uh, from, from when you talk about Susanna's death. Let's hear that now. I thought of her generosity. Like her father, she was a marvellous present giver, taking great pains to give pleasure, wrapping her gifts always in bright colours and with labels and ribbons. She wrote excellent letters, and whenever I saw her handwriting, I knew there would be something worth reading. Her jokes, her temper, which could be alarming and spread a pall of gloom over the house. I feared her disapproval and anger, which I sometimes merited. I also lent on her kindness. She took other people's troubles to heart. It was part of her generosity of spirit. She seemed to me, until the last year, supremely fortunate. She was lovely. She was exceptionally clever. She was as good a companion as one could find. She knew how to enjoy poetry, music, painting food, nature, friendship, work, love. She was brave, setting off cheerfully alone for America and for France with a bicycle. And when everything else went, her courage remained. She lit up our lives with her intelligence and generosity. She is not forgotten by her friends. I don't think there has been a day since her death when I have not thought of her, her blue eyes and her high spirits. I should have protected her and I failed. The system failed too badly and inexplicably. And so she was lost. That's incredibly moving, I think. How difficult was that to write? It was very difficult to write. I wrote the chapter about her over and over and over and over again. But I'm glad I wrote about her because she was remarkable. In terms of your skills as a biographer... Do you think that that was helpful, though? I mean, as you say, you wanted to write it. Is it also a way of processing that trauma, being able to write about it? I think it's a way of sort of, in a sense, saying it's happened and mm. it's, 
dealt with. Of course, not quite like that. You can't quite deal with it, can you? I mean, until I die, Susanna will be part of me. And no doubt her sisters and Tom also. Mm. But throughout that period, on a sort of up, up, sort of up note, you were supported by Michael Frayne. He was a friend of yours at the time. And there's quite a lot, I notice. If you know that you're going to end up with Michael Frayne, it's quite interesting how he turns up at yeah. moments of crisis he was when, he's, when he's not your husband. You're not romantically involved with him, but he's helping you in these times. Did you have a sense that you were going to end up with him or was he genuinely just a friend at these times? No, I just thought he was one of my... He was a very close friend and indeed Nick was very fond of him and Nick very much encouraged my friendship with him. But he, but he was uh, happily married and um, so I didn't have any any thoughts of what would happen. Let's talk about the last object you brought, which I think is one of the most beautiful things that you've brought to show me. I think possibly my best book is my book about Pepys. It came out in 2003, and that year they'd set up a medal. Uh, and I won it. Yes. And on, it is so beautiful that on one side, Robert the Latham, Robert the Latham memory of Robert Latham, who was one of the editors of the of the diaries you know, as they oh, came, came out, which, which is what got me to write about him, but I read them. I see. Each scene, you see, we've got the fire and we've got... We've got Peeps riding with Elizabeth. We've got the plague. Oh, We've yes, got it, the stage. So this is, I should say, for for listeners, it's a quite a heavy medal yes, yes. in silver or some silver. It's it, silver. It is silver. It, it, I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. Wow, it's uh, absolutely and it's, amazing. It's engraved with Robert Latham on one side, and then Peeps' life in sort of highlights on the yes, other side. Would you say? Yes. And you won this. I won it for my book on Peeps. Yes. Yes. Uh, but your book on Peeps. Was it in competition, or was it just a specific award created? Uh, well, to... uh, no, there, there were other, other uh, rather good books on Pepys published in the same. It's year. called the Unequaled Self, isn't it? It's like the subtitle. The subtitle. Yes, Why yes. is it called that? Well, I think Pepys felt that somehow he himself was yes uh, the the centre of everything. Yes. And, uh, well, I think uh, that's really interesting because I think. Peeps arrives at a time when the idea of the individual yes. is starting to he's, really He's one of the flourish. first modern men. First modern men. He and stood aside from himself. He looked yes. at himself. He was curious about the world and he was equally curious about himself. So yes. that's why his diaries are so great. Well, you said very early on when I asked you about did you ever worry about writing a biography of yourself that every life is interesting. But that begins, doesn't it, in a way, with Peeps. Because Peeps himself, although quite an important man, was not Shakespeare. He's not an incredible man but what he what he does is record himself because he, he be thinks his life is worthy of it and by doing so he becomes an incredible he man. does exactly yes yeah yes. Um, i think we're going to have to draw this to a close although i'd really like to carry on talking what is your next book going to be about i'm thinking of writing about someone whom i've been told no one is interested in now can't believe it the young hg wells i think people will be interested in that I think that, that, that science fiction, it's not just the science fiction, the science fiction stories will be read as long as people are reading. Yeah, well, him and Orwell, I think of as the people most able to see the future, Yes, it seems yes. to me. Uh, and also his politics, were I don't know that much about them, but I know his politics were very oh, interesting. Oh, he was wonderful. I mean, he wrote the, a, a tract, a political tract called The Misery of Boots, which is about what's wrong with England, that the poor people... <laughs> They're always always wearing hopeless shoes, suffering yeah. from their feet. Right, and you know, money—it just money divides. Yeah. It's just brilliant piece of writing. I will very much look forward to that, Claire Tomlin. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Well, it's lovely talking to you. Thank you.
Learn how to rewrite the rules with this entertaining and insightful look at the golden age of pirates. Challenging the status quo has never been easy, but with Be More Pirate, Sam Conifalende lays out suggestions on how we can begin sailing into a better future. 300 years ago, a small group of frustrated and underappreciated, mostly young professionals, had finally had enough of living in a society run badly by a self-interested and self-serving establishment. Disruption had become the constant backdrop to their lives, and they faced ongoing uncertainty, mass redundancy, in a world plagued by ideologically influenced international conflict. This generation felt entirely abandoned, and they were right. The odds were stacked high against them, and in every single way, the rules of the day favoured an elite few. And for the majority of people, life was unclear, unfair, and unfulfilling. Innovative, rebellious, and ultimately progressive, pirates have a lot to teach us, and we can begin listening now on Audible, iTunes, and Kobo.